Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm your host, James Huang. I'm Kaylee Fritz. And I'm Dave Rome. And today, we are going to be talking about some interesting developments in tech news, including some updated coverage on carbon wheels and whether or not things that you buy should be bricked by another company outside of your own doing. I'm going to say no, just to just go throw that one out there. I know it's a controversial opinion. But uh, I think that your things that you purchase should not brick themselves. I would tend to agree. And then we are going to have an in-depth discussion on how mountain bikes may or may not be influencing gravel bikes. Short answer, they are. And then we're going to finish off this episode with a, another heated debate about Bike Selector. We already have our selections here, and we're going to argue vigorously about them and i'm going to win we decided that to make this segment even better we, we we needed some real personal investment in each of our choices and so yeah we've 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 done our research we've picked a favorite and we are whoever loses has to do the dishes tonight after abby mickey makes us dinner because it's her night to make dinner and we're here in sedona arizona and we've been making dinner every night and whoever loses has to do the dishes that's a good idea hmm. why are we in sedona arizona for those just tuning in. Well, we are in the middle of the Cycling Tips gravel bike field test. We've got, what, 12 bikes down here? Well, we have 13 bikes in total, but 12 only 12 bikes. of them are gravel bikes. Hmm. And we are... And one of them is very fun. Hmm. <laughs> You're giving away too much here, Dave. You're giving away too much. <laughs> Let's get into this thing. First and foremost, Bonturga has updated their coverage policy on their carbon clincher wheels. So whereas before we had uh, Bontrager already offered their carbon care wheel loyalty program, which was a two year no cost replacement program uh, for any sort of damage from riding within the first two years of ownership. Now they are supplementing that with a lifetime warranty against defects with no additional cost to the purchaser. Now that in, in and of itself is not necessarily groundbreaking. I mean, Bontrager is basically doing, they're basically sort of keeping up with what some other companies have already been doing, like such as from, you know, Envy, Roval, and Giant, and some other companies. But this is a very welcome trend. And I would say one that's probably pretty long overdue. Yeah, so I think one of the major concerns anytime anybody buys a carbon wheel is, am I going to break this thing? Because unlike an aluminum wheel, it's not like a hundred bucks to replace. It's what, $400 to replace? Maybe more. So yeah, these sort of these sort of warranties are definitely very welcome. It also speaks to how confident the industry is becoming in their carbon rim technology, which is a nice thing to see. Yeah, on the one hand, it would have been nice to see this sort of thing earlier on, um, but it also does make me wonder if it really just has taken this long for companies to figure out how to make their carbon wheels not break. Because you'd have to think that all these companies are going to be offering this level of coverage only if they have some confidence that the wheels that they are putting out there can actually hold up. Uh, next on our list, I know that indoor recycling is a little bit of a controversial subject. It is Kelly Fretz's favorite activity to do. Don't Love let anyone, it. Don't let him fool you. It's my favorite thing. Uh, and obviously the biggest player in that field is Peloton right now, not any of the bike companies. And a whole bunch of other indoor cycling companies have tried to keep up. One of those companies is called Flywheel. They're basically the number two. And recently, they settled a lawsuit with Peloton uh, that I guess the short of it is that they pretty much had to fold up shop and go home. So Oops. meaning that all the people who had purchased a Flywheel who have them at home 
they got notices that their indoor bikes were no longer going to work. They were going to be remotely bricked. That super sucks. I, I mean, this is this is the danger, though, right? In a in a product that is fifty percent hardware and fifty percent sort of software videos, things that get pushed to your hardware. If the things stop getting pushed, then your hardware stops working. I mean, you know, we, we could absolutely see things like this happen in the you know the head unit world or or other places where the product is absolutely needs to be connected to the internet, needs to be connected to the cloud, needs to be connected to something something that is pushing information down to it. There is always the concern that if that information stops being pushed, the thing you just bought for however much money is going to stop working. I feel like this is really crummy design, though, because the product should still do its task. I mean, sure, it's, it won't get updated any further. You know, it, it, its existing bugs will continue to exist in it, and it won't have any, you know, perhaps it can't keep pace with new release technology or new software that's released, but the hardware itself should still keep working. And that's kind of the, the, the sour point here, right? I mean, it's really not any different from a smart trainer that you would buy from, you know, Taxi Elite or whatever. I mean, yes, you can run all of those in you know, erg mode or run them in, you know, some sort of manual setting. But if you want to use them in some sort of online virtual environment like Zwift or Train Road or whatever, it does require some sort of connection to the outside world. Now, if you cut off that connection completely to the outside world, then what do you have really? You have just a really expensive stationary trainer. Oops. A word of warning. This is a, this is a bit of a, I don't know, I hope it's not a canary in a coal mine. But uh, yeah, just a sort of a, a reminder that we are somewhat at the whim of the brands that we're buying from sometimes. And for some things, for sure. I mean, there is a silver lining for flywheel owners. I mean, they have been offered refurbished Pelotons as replacement for their now bricked fly uh, flywheel indoor bikes. But uh, that will come as little consolation, I think, for people who really had become attached to their particular spin bike instructors and their kind of environment and that sort of thing. I mean, it's a little bit of a, a uh, an unwelcome wake-up call for flywheel owners, so kind of a bummer. Next news item? Well, actually, we are going to move outside of news. No more we news. We're going to go straight back into riding outside. Sweet. And we're going to talk about why we are here in Sedona, because we did also already hint that we are here testing gravel bikes. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that we have already picked up on is how gravel bikes are very much being influenced by the mountain bike world. Not so much in terms of look and sort of features, but more in terms of actual geometry. So like the fundamentals of gravel bikes. Uh, Dave, what is happening here? So I guess a really good example to use is a bike we have here and a bike we've actually spoken about on the podcast before, which is the Evil Chamihager, uh, which is easily the most progressive gravel bike on the market as far as geometry goes. You'd almost and just describe it as radical. It's radical. It's crazy. Crazy would be another good word. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and when I say progressive, that's a word thrown around the mountain bike world a lot where they bikes are basically getting longer, lower, and slacker. Uh, and in that sense, uh, yeah, it's designed to tackle the terrain that we're forever making harder for ourselves. Um, you know, in the mountain bike world, people are pushing their bikes further into um, steeper and steeper terrain, more technical terrain, bigger jumps. Uh, the sport is just progressing. And that is what we're starting to see come across on the gravel world. It's not really surprising, right? I mean, gravel is an off-road 
pursuit. It's an off-pavement pursuit, which means that you run into a lot of the same issues as you do on a mountain bike. You run into traction problems and other things that don't really, you know, nobody designs a road bike around traction, right? That's just, it's not a thing that happens. Or, 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 you know, control through rough surfaces. That's not really a problem on a road. But gravel bikes, very much the same sort of set of design challenges, I would say, as a mountain bike, just on a much smaller scale. More on a scale of, you know, mountain bikes in the 80s or something like that. Trails that we're riding them on aren't, aren't all too different, actually. Yeah, no, no great surprise that we're seeing this, but still quite interesting. And I think it points to further the direction that gravel bikes will continue to go because that's really where the term progressive comes from, right? Is when you talk about progressive geometry on a mountain bike side, it's basically... You know, the mountain bike world as a whole looking to where the sport is going and saying these are the bikes that are already going there. Those are the progressive bikes. And we can say the same thing about gravel bikes now. Yeah. So let's let's break this down, James. Let's we talk, you know, longer, lower, slacker. What does that mean? Well, basically in terms of the longer, that primarily refers to the front center, basically the distance between the bottom bracket and the front wheel, and I guess also the kind of top tube cockpit length sort of thing. The idea being that by pushing the front wheel out further in front of you and then shortening the stem, you can maintain the same riding position, but you get a longer wheelbase, which gives you more stability. Uh, and especially on um, steeper terrain where, because the front wheel is further out in front of you, you have a little bit more control because your weight is more evenly centered between the two bikes when you're heading downhill. Now, with the lower, that refers more to kind of your overall center of gravity. The Chamois Hagar has 80 millimeters of bottom bracket drop, meaning compared to the axles, the bottom bracket sits 80 millimeters lower. Compared to a road bike, that's about 10 millimeters lower than normal. Um, I mean, that does put the pedals closer to the ground, sort of. I mean, you have to still have to account for the, the bigger tires and whatnot. Um, but by getting your center of gravity lower, you're basically making it so that the bikes corner better and have a little bit more stability and confidence when you're on kind of tricky corners. Slacker is basically just the head tube angle. So by reducing the angle of the head tube, you make the bike a little bit less twitchy and you give you basically give it a little bit more stability in high-speed corners and especially when things are slippery. It basically makes it so that the bike is a little bit less likely to be knocked offline by things that are happening on the trail. But at the same time, that is sort of counteracted by that shorter stem because while the front end sort of steers slower, it also now requires less physical movement to initiate the same steering angle. So that's basically what you get. All right, and then something does get steeper as well on these new bikes. The the seat tube is sort of, we're seeing a trend of that coming up. At least in the mountain bike world, that's the big thing in the mountain bike world is steeper seat tubes. In the mountain bike world, yes, we are seeing se steeper seat tubes like 76, 77, even 78 degrees, which very much violates the whole you know knee over pedal spindle idea of bike fitting that has been around forever and ever. Um, but in the mountain bike world, the reason why we have that is so that you are more apt to be able to continue putting power down to the rear wheel on a really, really steep ascent. Because in that situation, your bike can be pitched up at, say, you know, 30 degrees or something, and then that whole knee over pedal spindle thing is just gone. We're not really seeing that on the gravel bike side, however, because we're not seeing, you know, those, these bikes aren't meant to be used in those sorts of extremes of terrain. Um, so we're still seeing pretty normal, for the most part, seat tube angles, because you do still want to have good pedaling mechanics when you're on primarily flat-ish ground. So things aren't really changing too much there. Yeah, yeah, a half a degree at most is sort of the, the change we're seeing there. Something like that, pretty mild. Yeah. Um, but whereas this Chevy Hagar is super radical, I mean, it is very much at the extreme of what the mountain bike influence is, is 
happening to the to in, or in the gravel bike world, there is the argument to be made that it is going too far. Um, and it seems like you know, I think almost, we make that argument. <laughs> well, we definitely make that argument. Um, but you can certainly make the argument that it is still, I would say, an overall positive influence to have that sort of idea. But it almost seems like there should be some more of a middle ground there. Do we have any bikes from this week that hit that middle ground? Uh, yeah, the BMC Unrestricted, or URS, um, or ERS, however you want to say it. Um, that one has a similar idea in terms of the added length up front, but instead of going with a super slack front end, they still stick with a 70-degree head, head tube angle, um, which gives you still that front end nimbleness, but also the confidence of having that front wheel further out in front of you. Yeah, I guess to summarize, like if you look at what cross-country racing bikes do in terms of head angle and front center length, uh, that's probably a good representation for where gravel may be going. Uh, and in the case of the Xiaomi Hanger, uh, Hager, that is slacker than any other cross-country race bike currently on the market. There's a reason for that. It's actually slacker than my current trail bike. I think it's almost. I think it's almost identical to my trail bike. It's a little bit. Yeah, my, my, my trail bike is slacker, but it's also an enduro race bike. So I was going to say, that's not really a trail bike, Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> it's not really a trail bike. <laughs> Either way, I mean, you know, we always have talked about this sort of blurring of the lines between what gravel bikes are currently and what hardtail mountain bikes are currently. And I guess this is just another example about how that area is getting even muddier. And does it seem like we are no longer going to have some sort of firm line of demarcation when our thing is just going to blend together? Drop bars. So, follow-up question. Given the bikes that we've ridden this week and the mountain bikes you've ridden and all these other things, if you were a product manager, if you were a designer of one of these bikes, what, would, what numbers would you write down on your, on your geometry chart to make them ride the way that you want them to? Uh, I feel like I like the general idea of the evil Shami Hagar, but I would want a less extreme front end um, because I personally think it's really fun to, you know, just hooligan around on that bike when the conditions are really loose and slippery. Um, but that's also not really the sort of terrain that I generally find myself on a gravel bike riding. In those sorts of situations, I'd be more likely to be riding a hardtail. Um, so I would probably blend aspects of that and something like the BMC, maybe go with like a 68-ish, something like that, degree head tube angle, maybe 69. And all of this is stuff we get into in great detail with the field test, uh, which should be out what, within probably four to five weeks from now, yeah. I would say. Basically uh, after Paris-Roubaix. Yep. Yeah, but some of the other elements in terms of, you know, if a, if a product manager were to spec our, our dream gravel bike, I'd also be looking to some of the spec options. So, you know, we want we want bikes to fit at least a 45 millimeter tire. We want bikes to accept a front derailleur uh, because one by group sets, I think will get there on the gravel, but they're currently not there. You've only got realistically one truly great one by option on gravel and it costs a mint which is the SRAM mullet group set the wireless AXS group set and that is currently unaffordable for the majority of people I mean yeah I mean the that gearing is certainly another area where mountain bikes are are having an influence and I honestly don't know if that's really going to take hold in gravel anywhere near as much as it has on the mountain bike world because it's certainly not in its current form I mean there the reason why one by never caught on on the road 
um, is because there are just too many compromises with it in terms of one bike versus two bike. I mean, the gaps are too big or the total range is too small. Like you just can't have both. The speed differentials are just way higher. Yeah. I mean, on the mountain bike, it, I mean, I run, I've run one by my mountain bike for God knows how long at this point. Mm. And it's not really that big of a difference to have, you know, a little bit more of a disruption in your cadence when you're going from gear to gear. But on the road or on gravel, it is much more of a disruption, and I don't really particularly like it. I like one bike for gravel bikes, but I also ride gravel bikes like mountain bike hardtails. So that's not really all that surprising. Yeah, and that argument really exists on whether you ride gravel bikes on the road or whether you ride them truly off-road, um, you know, as to what the gearing. To follow up on my geometry question, so we're saying like a 68, 69 head tube angle. That seems to be like a sweet spot. For us, right? As far as being a progressive gravel bike, progressive yes. gravel bike, yeah, it, well, yeah. We're not talking sort of like race gravel bikes or anything like that, but like sort of, you know, if we're talking progressive mountain bike inspired gravel bikes, where they're going to go, 68, 69 degrees. Are we also looking at sort of trail bike style? You know, I want the bike to fit me reach wise with a 60 mil stem. I mean, we, we can't put a front center number on it because it's going to change depending on size. It's not like a head tube angle, but we can say, well, across the range, we want. 60 mil stem to be functional. Uh, I mean, I like how the BMC rides with that stock 50 millimeter stem. It is a little bit weird coming from a more normal gravel bike, but I mean, it really doesn't take very long to, you know, just ride it on gravel to get used to it and to really like it actually. Um, do I think that's where things are going to go? Uh, I don't know. I think that's still going to main, I think that's still going to be kind of more at the extreme. Um, personally, I, th I feel like, It'll be more of a like a mainstream sweet spot to end up at more like, you know, 70, 80 millimeters, something like that, because it does feel a little more normal that way. Um, because, again, when, when you have the stem that short, I mean, even with the drop bar and that additional reach that, um, you know, being on the hoods adds, when you have a stem that short, it really doesn't take a whole lot of movement to start getting that front wheel to be moving left and right. And I don't know how many people who are going to be riding gravel bikes will like that. Yeah, mm. and it's interesting you choose seventy millimeters because that's where the larger sizes of the BMC bikes are. They they've settled on seventy millimeters, so it's really only the the smaller sizes, including the one we're testing, that has that fifty fifty five millimeter stem, which is kind of at the the extreme. And then the, again, Evil kind of just takes it too far. They're what forty millimeter stem, forty five or fifty. Forty five. Yeah, I mean that's that's what I keep for my long travel trail bike. I uh, don't really think that has a a great place at the moment on a on a drop bar bike what do we think about dropper posts on gravel bikes because on the one hand i can kind of see how maybe on like a fully loaded adventure bike it would be good to be able to get the saddle out of the way every now and then for a little bit of extra control but i mean the only gravel bike that we have here on test that has a dropper post included as standard equipment is on the chamois hagar and I can barely ride a mountain bike at all now without a dropper post, hardtail, full suspension, whatever. Uh, to the point now where I would rather have, if, if, you give, if you gave me the choice, I would rather take a dropper seat post over rear suspension. Yep, agreed with that. I don't feel that way about the chamois Hagar though. Dave, what was your experience with that? I mean, that, that bike puts the front wheels so far in front of you and it's very much a rigid bike in every single way. I mean, there is no detectable flex in that bike. Uh, so anytime... I was getting to a point where I'd even remotely consider wanting to touch the dropper. I was too busy thinking about holding onto the handlebars. But if that frame had a lot more compliance, let's say if it had a really smooth ride, yeah. do you think you would still want to be able to use the dropper at that point? It's really hard. I mean, I not 
not once, even even riding while riding mountain bike trails in Sedona on a drop bar bike, not once when I was riding that evil did I reach for the dropper post. Did I want to reach for that dropper post? I put it down at one point just to see, and I put it straight back up because I wanted the I wanted the control from the saddle on that bike. Uh, I think yeah, droppers do have a place, and it obviously will depend where you ride. You know, if you're riding some really steep terrain, then I, I can see it having some benefit, but. Is anybody riding yeah. really steep terrain on a gravel bike? I mean, they kind of shouldn't be really, because yeah. at that point you should just I mean, you should just be riding a mountain bike. That's yeah. That, yeah, that's where I was going. It's like if you really feel like you need a dropper on a gravel bike, then you're probably at a point where you should be you're better off on a mountain bike. So the use case that I think really makes sense is something like, okay, well, my ride today is gonna be eighty percent pavement, but the twenty percent of dirt that I'm on is gonna be pretty nasty. Right. So like it's going to be through gullies or through whatever things that you, you know, really brief, steep sections where you're going to want to get off the back of the bike a little bit. And let's not forget that, you know, the place where you get the most control on a drop bar is in the drops, which also puts you really far forward and really far down, uh, which is why I don't like drop bars in general. But that's neither here nor there. But that it, it, that's a double reason to then have a dropper C post because it sort of lets you counteract that and lets you get lower and lets you get further back, right? So I think there is a, a, a very narrow use case for the dropper post, but I, I do think it's more narrow than the industry is currently suggesting with the number of bikes that are available with it's droppers. Surprising. Yeah. yeah, and then and then let's not like forget the fact that droppers still aren't a hundred percent reliable, right? Gravel bikes. So many of these gravel bikes are people are buying them to go multi day. Uh, touring trips and go to places where you will not get a chance to to you know to get any service on these things and the last thing you want is your seat post sagging when you're trying to pedal uh, add in the fact that you try often people are strapping bags these things and those bags are just furthering the issues um, I'm just not convinced yeah I'm, I'm not a I'm with James. I, I would not ride a mountain bike without a dropper anymore. Personally, yeah, that's definitely not a personal mountain bike. There, I wouldn't own a mountain bike without a dropper post. The riding for gravel just it just doesn't make any sense. It's just the the position on the bike is different. The things I'm riding are different. The the so it's such a small window where I actually want the dropper post. That let's not forget we rode without dropper posts on mountain bikes for a very long time. A skilled rider can still get down steep stuff with a regular seat post. You just stick that thing in your belly and go right. Look at Nino Schurter. Yeah, exactly. Nino Schurter still riding with that one. I, I just it, it seems like it's a big hassle. It's a it's a lot of added weight for such little gain. I'd rather spend the money elsewhere. I'd rather spend the weight elsewhere you know up your tire size by five millimeters you're still going to be a lighter overall package than if you added a dropper instead um another area where mountain bikes are influencing gravel bikes um and and i think this is one that most of us can agree was a good thing is rotor sizes because for a while i feel like in certainly you know like in cyclocross we were seeing a lot of people running like you know 140 millimeter rotors that sort of thing and then things moved to 160 up front 140 in the back um BMC, again, is a sign that they are particularly progressive in the gravel bike world. On their gravel bike, they fitted a, or they installed a 180 mil front rotor, which, as far as I can remember, I haven't seen on any other gravel bikes yet. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I actually remember back from at least a decade ago, BMC were the first to do this in the cross country racing world as well. Um, And their reasoning back then was like, you know, we're a Swiss brand. We, the engineers spend their days in the Swiss, Swiss Alps and, their brakes get extremely hot. Um, and especially, you know, on a gravel bike that you're going to load up with with maybe some overnight gear or multi-day gear, it makes sense to have that additional um, heat capacity in your brakes. 
plus a bit of extra power and yeah. power. Yeah. I, I'm a big fan, and you know, we we had a bike here this week, which you will you'll have to hear about in our YouTube videos and et cetera. That when when the when the actual content from the gravel field test comes out, but there was a bike that I really 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 liked. In fact, it may be my favorite bike of the entire week. The brakes are garbage, and that's one of the things I would add. Is I would add immediately a 180 mil rotor because you're gonna get a little bit more power out of it, more heat dissipation. I yeah, it's it's overbraking yourself off road is a really hard thing to do. So I don't see why we don't just throw bigger brakes on. I mean, you know, I run a two hundred three rotor with Shimano Saints on my mountain bike. Why would I want something that's just little piddly weak disc brake on my gravel bike? Right. I mean, and and as tires on gravel bikes get bigger, and as the treads get more aggressive, I mean, as they become more like mountain bikes, which is, does seem to be the, the direction where at least one segment of the gravel bike market is going. It does make sense to increase the rotor size as well because you are just going to be going faster on these things on sketchier terrain. And it is pretty much always a good thing to have more braking performance. I may say this all the time. I mean, I really can think of almost really no other wheeled sporting application where someone complains about having too much brake. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't happen. I mean, granted, I mean, those come with other, with other downsides like additional weight and that sort of thing. But... I mean, if you're okay with those other downsides, I mean, having a lot more break is rarely a bad thing. It's pretty much never a bad thing. Uh, another aspect that we're seeing uh, kind of come across under the gravel world is uh, suspension. I mean, it's you really wouldn't buy a mountain bike these days without suspension. I mean, some people kind of do just for the sake of being different, but Hit suspension space. is mountain biking. And we have seen, at least with one of our bikes from Nina, there's... Uh, it's just gross outside. <laughs> I should say that what, the reason we're making a podcast right now is because we intended to be riding bikes, and it's dumping rain. <laughs> so we came to the desert to escape the weather, we'll and it caught to up Sedona, with us. They we're, said it'll be dry. They said we're just going to keep. They this said. may be like a four-hour podcast because we're just going to keep talking until it stops raining out there. Yeah. Sorry, everybody. So. Anyway, suspension. Yeah, so I mean, the, we've got the Magic Carpet Ride here from Nino, which is realistically the only dual suspension gravel bike on the market at the moment. And that really is just a shrunk-down mountain bike in terms of the technology it's using. Uh, James, what do you think? I mean, I am very much in favor of suspension on off-road vehicles. Uh, I mean, you can argue that suspension is good on on on-road vehicles too. Um, But for off-road stuff, I mean, there's just no way you can completely keep the wheels on the ground and maintain rider comfort and control 100% without having some sort of mechanical means of keeping those wheels on the ground. And you can certainly make the argument that it's not entirely necessary in gravel, and I would agree with that depending on what sort of gravel you're riding. But if you are doing more stuff that you know, is a little more trail-oriented or you know, it's a little rougher in general, or honestly, if you're going to be going out for a really long day and kind of just want to stay a little fresher and a little more comfortable, suspension is not a bad way to go. Now, keep in mind that when we say suspension, that doesn't necessarily automatically mean that we're talking about you know, big, complicated mechanical systems like what you have on that Niner. It doesn't have to be like a multi-pivot rear end and this big telescoping air sprung fork from Fox and like having all these having all these extra bits. You know, it could be something like the Trek isospeed system or, you know, the 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 Future Shock thing in a specialized diverge, which is basically just a coil spring and a really basic damper up front. Um, you know, things like that redshift suspension stem or any number of pseudo suspension seat posts, be it from, you know, redshift or the Canyon VCLS posts, stuff like that. I mean, I think there is a lot of merit to not only maintaining rider comfort in those sorts of scenarios on just on gravel bikes in general, but there is 
I think personally a, a big performance benefit to just being fresher on those longer rides and also maintaining traction because I personally think you'll go faster because you can just pedal more. Yep. That that going first element's been proven again. Mountain bikes, you know, in in the cross country world. Five years ago, we used to see hardtails everywhere, and now it's fewer and fewer between. You know, the courses have gotten rougher, but you know the top guys have done this time testing. They've done back to back testing, and most of the time, they're realizing that the full suspension bike can be the faster bike. The bumpy bike feels faster because you're getting bounced around. It's just a weird psychological thing, but almost always the suspended bike is faster. Right, and we even see this just on straight up road bikes. I mean, we we used to think that you know, 23, 25 mil tires were really fast at 110 PSI. And now we know that even on, or I guess I should say on anything other than completely glass smooth pavement, we know now that it is faster to run a bigger tire at a lower air pressure because it is more, I guess, stable. Even though it feels slower, often feels slower. Yes, exactly. Well, it'll be interesting to see how much more this blurring of the lines will continue to move forward. Um, but in the meantime, and we do still have drop our gravel bikes and flap our mountain bikes, and then let's see what happens in between. There's a lot of, uh, yeah, some, some interesting things happening in that space right there right now. And I think we're going to see some cool stuff out from on the suspension front from brands in the next five years. I would hope so anyway. I, ho- I hope that they're putting, you know, engineering chops into it, Put it putting their best engineers on the problem. Right. I and think it's a, it's a tricky one to solve, but there's a, lot of, there's a lot of benefit to be had. And as crazy as some of the ideas are, I do think it's really cool that we are seeing people who aren't afraid to toss some of those ideas out there. Because eventually, you know, ultimately, some of these ideas are going to stick, and some of them are going to be pretty good. Yep. And I think we're going to see the return of a lot of old technology. I think a lot of product designers will be, in a smart way, looking back to the 1990s, uh, early day mountain bikes, and looking through the catalog and being like, oh, yeah. Maybe the head shock was a good idea. I, w- I would love a head shock. Bring back the head shock. Silk Road, Canada, it's time to bring it back. So more to come and a lot of exciting stuff to keep attention to. So we'll see what happens. But in the meantime, speaking of hardtails and gravel bikes, it is time for Bike Selector. I look forward to you guys doing the dishes tonight. Mm. Mm-hmm. Who selects the winner? Well, that's a good question. Hmm. I do. Mm. Yeah. I see the problem here. <laughs> I see, that, that seems just mildly unfair. If any, so, no, in, in previous episodes, we've all come to the table with ideas, and then usually one of us walks away with everyone else being like, yeah, that was a good idea. So we'll see if that happens this time. If not, then That's we'll normally because you threaten to fire us. <laughs> we'll all share the dishes if not. All right, who wants to go first? So, oh wait, James, you have to say what this, what, uh, what the individual wants. Yep, who's our, on. who's our buyer, and what do they want? Okay, we are going to mix things up again because we have primarily done gravel bikes in the past, and I think in the last episode we did an all-road bike with rim brakes. Even uh, this one comes from William Denman, who is actually looking for a three thousand dollar max U.S. dollar mountain bike. He has no preference between big and little brands. Uh, he likes bikes like the Specialized Epic, the Pivot Mach 429, and the Cannondale Slate, inter- interestingly enough. Mm. He's going to be riding this bike on both coasts of the United States, actually, both in Southern California and in New England. Definitely wants disc brakes. Doesn't really have a preference for frame material. And then he is open to buying used. Good to know. Um, 
and he said his typical ride is going to be gravel sometimes to get to single track flowy stuff. He doesn't want to do downhill things, quote unquote. Uh, I would like to race cross country as well. He doubts that he'll ever be competing in it to win, but will be doing it more for fun. He's also going to be climbing to get into the San Gabriel Mountains and splitting time on the coast, so he'd like to be able to ride around Boston and Vermont as well. Mm. And asked for three words that will help him in his bike search to, you know, three words that will describe this bike that he wants. He wants it to be versatile, quick, and smooth. I think we're all Ooh. in agreement that it sounds like a mountain bike hardtail is maybe the best way for him to go here. I think so, although I, I, I think you could make an argument that some of these more progressive gravel bikes could also function pretty well particularly if they were run with like a 650 by 50 kind of wheel set tire combination but yes my my personal selection is a mountain bike because uh he's it sounds like he's tilting more toward the sort of hardtail realm than the gravel space all right kaylee let's start with you what do you think william should buy here i think that we should start with someone else because mine is so good that if i do mine then there's not even any point in you guys doing yours mm, dave we'll start with you <laughs> so then. so my initial suggestion was going to be the specialized epic hardtail the comp level which is 2600 dollars uh features a frame which is more on the progressive side for the geometry so it's roughly like a 68 degree head angle off the top of my head uh long front center short stem it's a bike that you know um is going to be confident on the downhills. It's going to inspire being able to push it a little bit more. Uh, it'll go great in the single track. And it's one of the lighter options on the market. So it's going to be amazingly efficient when you're on the gravel, when you're racing. Uh, I believe it's just one of the better hardtails out there today. That said, uh, the used element that you just mentioned, James, I hadn't seen that before. Um, that could change it. And immediately I started thinking crazy efficient really expensive full suspension bike that is maybe a generation old so the one that came to mind was again specialized epic which is dual suspension uh, bike designed for marathon racing it's basically a hardtail until you hit a bump uh the downside is there's a bit more weight in it there's a bit more maintenance to it but that is one of the most efficient dual suspension bikes on the market normally it would be out of that price point of three grand but you could pick up last year's generation there's a lot of them out there they're by far and away the most popular cross-country dual suspension on the market globally. Uh, and yeah, if you picked up a used one of those in good, good nick, that could actually be a really great bike. Uh, and that definitely ticks the comfort box. Hmm. So would you say that your first pick then would be a used Epic full suspension? Yeah, let's go with that. Hmm. Having ridden that bike quite a bit, I'd have to say that is a good choice. It's an mm. awesome bike. Yeah. Still my favorite cross-country bike ever, actually. Kaylee, I'm going to make you go second here. All right, fine. Okay, so we have $3,000. We have we want it to be sprightly and yet comfortable. I think we're in the hardtail space. For three grand, it's sort of the it's sort of the middle middle to mid low, kind of in the budget scale. I mean, obviously, mountain bikes go up to what twelve, thirteen thousand dollars, just like road bikes. But you know, for three grand from most brands, you're getting sort of the middle of the middle of the ground bike. However. From our friends at Canyon, the direct-to-consumer brand. So again, this would require you to be a little bit more comfortable, probably working on your own bike, or at least building it up, or or have a good relationship with a shop that you can that you can leverage. But the Canyon Exceed CFSL 7.0. This thing has a RockShox SID, carbon fiber wheels from Reynolds, a GX Eagle drivetrain, pretty solid. Not particularly light, but pretty solid. Whole thing weighs 10.2 kilograms, $2,999. So you have $1 to spare. I think it's a pretty 
incredible build for the money. I mean, most brands, this kind of build, you're looking at at least 3,500, 4,500 bucks. So you're, you're saving yourself $1,500, which is kind of the standard with most of the, most of these direct to consumer brands. It's a super, super solid bike at a really, really good price. None of the spec really stands out as a potential issue. I think it's a, it's a really great option. Now, one thing that is, I guess worth noting. I mean, that I think would be probably the the one of, if not the lightest option he could get in a mountain bike hardtail for that price range. And the carbon wheels would, I think, would have a big influence on how that bike feels. It probably would make that bike feel a lot quicker, um, kind of like on on gravel and pavement. If he has to ride on that stuff to get to trails, like he said that he does, um, and the suspension fork is going to be one of the better options out there for sure. Um, so no question, there is a lot to like here. It is missing a dropper post. It is missing a dropper post. And uh, the GX is a bit... Eh. I mean, it works. It, it works It fine. does a good job. It gives you a lot of range. Yep. However, Kaylee, what? I know you are very confident in the fact that you are going to be winning here. I am going to win. But you may not realize that you already disqualified yourself. Why? Because you said that... You stated very clearly that the price range that is stated in the bike selector has to include everything. All in, right? Yeah. This bike doesn't come with pedals. What is he going to oh, do? Oh, loophole. Loophole. <laughs> Gailey is going to do the dishes. Uh, I bet he already has pedals. Take pedals off his current bike. Mm, but, then he, but then his other bike doesn't have pedals. It says here very clearly, accessories, pedals, none included. You don't even get flats with it. So, <laughs> so William, you could very well ride the lightest $3,000 hardtail on the market, new, in the Canyon XC CFSL 7.0 that Kaylee is recommending here. But... Kaylee, unfortunately, has hamstrung you into running with this bicycle because it does not come with pedals. It is a very nice balance bike at this point. I, I disagree with this. I think that pedals, he can buy hey, pedals I, separately. I am, I am just operating by the rules that you established here. Kaylee is so confident in his decision that he will personally buy you a set of pedals <laughs> if you mm, buy this how bike. How about that? All right, my decision here, my, my choice now, I really do like mountain bike hardtails for the most part. I still think they're really fun to ride. However, I don't like hardtails that ride really harshly. And uh, for that reason, I am going with the Trek Pro Caliber 9.6, which uses mm. Trek's ISO-speed system out back, which is basically like a little pivot in between the seat tube and the top tube so that the seat tube can pivot a or can flex a little bit more on bumps. Now, it does work. Oh, wait, wait, there's sun coming out. We, we might. We could stop the podcast soon. Podcast over. We got to go. <laughs> uh, no, but seriously, I mean, as far as hardtails go, I feel like that is a really good blend of everything because you do get that hardtail efficiency in terms of pedaling, but you do get a lot of rider comfort and you can still add a dropper post if you wanted to down the road. But seeing as how my selection here is $25.99.99, which means that William still has $400 and one cent to dedicate towards some really, really nice pedals. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say, and I will say, while the Canyon Exceed is claimed to weigh 10.2 kilograms, very light, the the Trek is claimed to weigh, uh, what do we have here? It's claimed to weigh 11.05 kilograms. So it's, like it's a kilogram more. It's 0.85. So we're talking about probably about a pound and a half of weight. Okay. Pound you and a half of weight. pedals to mine and not, still lighter not, than yours. It's not that big of a deal. All things considered, it's not, that, added. not yep. that big of a deal considering the, the, the big increase in rider comfort that he would get, which I think would contribute a lot to off-road control as well. What was the fork and brakes on that one? 
that is a Rock Shocks Recon Gold, which is not as good as the Sid. No, it's not as good as the Sid. So, so just, just none, to, none of this matters. He doesn't have pedals. He can't ride. <laughs> Let's assume that he is also a kleptomaniac, and he just steals pedals from his friends. How about that? He just went over to his friend's house, and his, no, 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 the, and the pedals the, just disappeared. And what, it, who what, knows what where you, they went? What are you, my six-year-old daughter? Are you going to just keep moving the goalposts and changing the rules <laughs> well, of the game? You can't do that. Then he could pick up my used bike for free. The entire bike. <laughs> I need I need to explain here why part of the reason why I think this canyon is so interesting, and the uh, the the really the reason really is the spec because I think almost any bike in this price range, any hardtail, almost period, is going to ride roughly the same, and unless it has a Flexi seat post, unless like the Trek. it has a flexi seat post like the Trek, but pretty much any other hardtail is going to ride roughly the same. So really, you're looking at what the spec around that frame looks like, and this one just has the best. It has the, the best wheels, the best fork, has a perfectly adequate drivetrain. It is missing a dropper post. I, I do really love dropper and pedals, but it's and it's missing pedals. But it sounds like dropper post maybe not the most important thing in the world to William because he says he's not doesn't really not that interested in downhill stuff and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. That is why I think if you're looking in this in this sort of area, paying too too close of attention to the frame is foolish. You want to make sure that the geometry is not terrible. And this one is a bit steep, 69.5 degree head angle, but that's not terrible. And particularly if he's used to road bikes, it's not going to feel particularly weird. Yeah, as, as long as you don't screw that up, the actual ride quality differences in a hardtail are going to be so minimal because you're talking about you have two inches of of tire between you and the ground, you know, two, three PSI in the tire is going to make way more of a difference than anything you could put into that frame. Yeah. I would, Unless I the would, frame has a flexi C tube, like the Trek poor caliber. I, I, every time I get on the flexi C tube things, I'm like, nah, nah, I would just like to add that Absa Cape Epic. Uh, if we were to poll the people that enter that race over the last, I don't know, decade, uh, about 60% of all entrants would be in favor of my vote. So, uh, specialized Epic, Used full suspension bike, I win. Phil, our videographer Phil just showed up. Phil's gonna be the judge. Okay, so I'm gonna throw another wrench into into the works here for Dave here. Yeah. Now I have ridden that Specialized Epic quite a bit. I think it is a great performing bike. But however, one of my big knocks against that bike is the fact that it uses a 100% proprietary shock. I was just going to say that, the rear shock, a second-hand brain rear yep, shock. Yep, exactly. Um, they so are easily serviced. They are serviced to a point because Specialized does, and, and granted, pretty much every company does this, they have a history of only supporting that proprietary suspension component for a certain number of years after which you are SOL. What about second owner and warranties? There is none. Yeah, there, are, there is William, none. William, don't fall down. I mean, there... That suspension, there's enough specialty suspension outlets now that are beyond the brands that deal with all suspension that are happy to deal with uh, the first generation Fox shocks from 20 years ago. To a, to a point, you can get like internal components and stuff like that. Yeah. But say if you have a stanchion body that is scored or something like, you know, you have a, a remote reservoir that is totally janked. Like at that point, you are going to have a much harder time finding service for that bike. But what if William's a kleptomaniac? Again, he could steal a working, he could steal a functional right. I, I'm going, off his friend's I'm going bike. To propose, I'm going to propose a compromise here. Okay, anyway, James. <laughs> my, my, my selection was a new Trek Pro Caliber 9.6 with the ISO speed flexi seat tube thing, carbon fiber frame, new with a warranty. It's well under budget. He has plenty of money for other little upgrades if he wants. It is not that much heavier than the Canyon. It's like a pound and a half heavier. Not a huge difference. Comes with a warranty. Phil, Phil's currently looking at photos, which makes me think he's just going to pick color. It is. 
it's a, a it's a good looking bike. <laughs> I'm impressed with that bike for that money. You have to be impressed with my bike for my money. Rockshark Sid. They're both Harvard, impressive Harvard bikes wheels. for the money, I would say. Oh, that's a tough call. But one doesn't come with pedals. Whoever right. loses has to do the dishes, Phil. Well, no, just so I mean, you know. Kaylee, Kaylee imposed this his his rule that I later caught him out on was that the designated price limit has to include everything, including pedals. And his bike, I don't remember for, making this rule. Oh yeah, no, no, no we have it. It's two thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars ninety nine cents. It does not include pedals. So this so, bike is unrideable. Uh, I think great, he already has. Pedals. Great on a podcast here, but I'm looking at the photos, and the Trek <laughs> does look nicer. That's a pretty cool paint job. Okay, I am I am going to I I, cool I believe I'm the winner here, but I am going to go like ahead. Yellow to red face. It, it's like this like beautiful like sunset thing, right? Right. Yeah. But I'm going to. I'm that going says to, Sedona to me actually. Yeah, there you go. No. no. <laughs> there's just a lot of arguing going on. Abby, we are not done recording. This is this is the like the like the the like the the, the thrilling conclusion of our podcast here. Trek Pro Caliber 9.6 wins. All right, ah! so wait, wait, here we go. So Phil has designated me the winner, which is good because I also designate myself. Wait a, a second, but I came in second, so Dave's doing the dish. Right. No, but but, <laughs> no, 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 but no, I was the outlier. I I, I have a compromise that I would like to propose here. Okay, no one does the dishes because we should go out to dinner tonight. Yeah, I like this. <laughs> that sounds like a great idea. Done. All right, and with that, we are going to conclude this episode of the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. If you liked this podcast, please, please consider subscribing. Don't uh, consider it. Just do it. It doesn't cost you anything. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify. Stitcher, uh, Google Play. I've lost count of how many different formats people Wherever use. Wherever you find your podcast, yeah. Just, just hit subscribe. Yep. Leave us Great. a comment. Let us know what you think. Yeah. Leave us a review, but don't have your review be mean about our voices because that happens sometimes and we're like what are we supposed to do about that like am I supposed to change my voice what do you want, what and, do you want and currently that? my voice is kind of not really normal yeah and James sounded like James Earl Jones yesterday so. yes I'm, I'm on the upswing though yeah he sounds yep. much better yep anyway we will be back in two weeks with another wonderful episode of Nerd Alert so we'll see you soon thanks everybody yeah